Let's pray together. Father, we come and we return these gifts to you because they have come to us from your hand. And we do so responding to your grace, to the assurance of our pardon, to the one great truth, to the good news that love did come down. And when love came down, he pardoned us from our sins and receives us as righteous because of his own merit. Father, we thank you for this good news this morning. And we ask that you would use these gifts, these tithes and these offerings for your glory in this world, that your kingdom would be advanced upon this earth, that the good news of the gospel would be proclaimed to all the nations. And Father, as we prepare to come before your word now, to sit beneath it, to hear you speak, we pray just that, that we would hear you speak. And this gospel that we hope will be proclaimed to all the nations. Father, we pray that it would indeed be proclaimed to us this morning. That our eyes would be lifted up to see the Lord Jesus Christ. To find our rest in him, our hope in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. It's kind of cool. I, I don't know if uh, some of you may not know this, but I, I was sitting here during the offertory and I was thinking, this is just kind of cool. Jean Valjean is singing our, um, our offertory anthem. Our music director is starring in Les Mis. Uh, he's the lead, uh, Jean Valjean, at Playhouse on the Square. So if you get a chance to go uh, over the next month, please do that. Um, but just kind of cool. Um, so anyway, um, we are almost done with, uh, with a series that we've been going through during the summer months. And that series has been kind of traveling through some stories in the Old Testament. And we're doing it really because we want to be reminded again and again that every page of the Bible speaks to us of Jesus. That every story breathes and whispers his name to us. And this morning, we're in Isaiah chapter 6. This story of Isaiah having a vision of God and really being called into mission. Um, and now, I, I do want you to listen closely to me for, for just a minute. Um, well, I want you to listen the whole time, but really important right now. Um, there, uh, you know, in Isaiah chapter 6, there, there's a wealth of information. And wonderful things to talk about. We're not going to be able to talk about them all this morning. But here's how, how I want us to approach this passage. I, I really want to ask, what happens to you? What happens when you meet and experience the real God? You know, and it's important that I, I, I phrase the question that way. Because I'm not asking... What happens when you know your theology? Or, or what happens when you know things about God? Or what happens when you know how God calls you to live in this life? It, the, those are good questions. It's not what I'm asking this morning. I am asking what happens when you encounter and meet and experience the real, true, and living God. And here's my thesis, if you will. I'm giving it to you up front this morning. Um, 
it, here it is. When you experience the real God, you will find freedom and you will find joy to enter into the mission of God. And let me set it up for you like this. I was a science major, a biology major in college. So every once in a while, I have to reach back to those days for an illustration. Um, it just makes me feel better about all those thousands of dollars spent on my education um, so that I could become a preacher uh, and never use that degree. Um, but this is something you, you probably learned in elementary school or junior high um, and, and something I, I've shared with you before. But in the 1600s, um, Isaac Newton, he came up with his three laws of motion, right? Um, and, and we've come to know that the first law of motion as the law of inertia, right? And here's how, how the law goes. It says every object, every object persists in its state of rest or uniform motion in a straight line unless it is compelled to change that state by forces impressed upon it, right? Very simple. Everything stays at rest. It doesn't move. It doesn't change until it's compelled to change by a force impressed upon it from the outside, right? Uh, so like this bulletin here, I'm going to put, you know, it's on the pulpit. It will not move on its own. It won't move unless a force from the outside comes and compels it to move, right? That, that's what it's saying. It doesn't move by itself. Only when something from the outside comes and causes it to move, right? For there to be motion, something has to compel that motion. And I don't have time to paint a, a full picture of this for you this morning. Um, but let me just say that the truth is that all of us, no matter where you are in life right now, we very deeply long for change in our lives. We long for there to be movement in our lives, direction, right? To move from a state of rest, right? In a direction that breathes life and joy and freedom and meaning into our lives. You know, it's true, I think, that some of us, you might say, well, I don't know if that's true of me. It, I will say, I think it is true that some of us have grown very hard and very cynical to that longing in our hearts. I mean, we we're doubtful that it's possible or true. But deep in our hearts, we have this aching hunger and longing and hope for real, deep, substantive change. Not just change at the surface of our lives and behavior. We long for transformation in our lives. You know, but how do, how do you get that change? And how do I get that change? How do we get this real transformation? And inside out, changing who we are. You know, you have to forgive the cold, impersonal, scientific illustration at the beginning. But, but the truth is this. You and I will only change and we will only move in a direction and become something different and be transformed when something from outside of us, real wonder, Real beauty, real glory, real grace acts upon us. That's when we change. When, when, that's when we are compelled to change. So here it is. 
you know, when you and I experience the real God like Isaiah and have him act upon our lives from the outside, that's when we're going to find freedom and joy and change and move into the mission of God. So here's, here's what I want to do. I want to show you this. In this passage, I want you to see that when you experience the real God, you are confronted with his beauty. You are confronted with your brokenness. And you are confronted with his grace and his mission in your life. So first, when Isaiah met God, he was confronted with his beauty. If, if I can just briefly set the stage for you. you. You know, under the reign of King Isaiah, who's mentioned in verse 1, the nation of Israel had prospered. They had done very well, culturally, economically, all kinds of ways. But near the end of his reign, the, the nation of Assyria was advancing and making it and conquering on the way and making their way to Israel to conquer and overthrow them. And, and, and so what's happening here, it's in the year that King Isaiah died and all this stuff is happening. And it's a time of cultural and national crisis, right? It's scary. The, the, the future looks so bleak and so dark. And so Isaiah went into the temple to worship and to pray. But something very unexpected and shocking happened. He met God there. He was given a vision of God. In the midst of all this chaos and uncertainty, a vision of God seated on his throne. And the first thing that happened when Isaiah experienced God and met him was that Isaiah was confronted with his absolute beauty. You see it, it's this vision of God on his throne, right? In his regal majesty, and he's high, and he's lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Right, these angels, uh, uh, seraphim, right, with two wings, they're flying. You know, it's this picture that um, they're they're ready and willing to do God's bidding at a moment's notice. And with two, they're covering their feet, which is symbolic of humility. And with two wings, they were shielding their eyes, covering their faces. And here's what I think is going on. So thrilling and so captivating and so beautiful is this vision of God. I mean, it's like rubbernecking at a traffic accident, only positively. That it's so beautiful. You have to be in its presence. You so want to look, but it's so beautiful. You can't look directly at it. That's what's happening here. You know, and why is that? They are telling you and me, these seraphim, and they're telling each other in verse 7. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You know, in Hebrew language, a lot of you know this, in, in order to emphasize something, in order, in order to speak of something in the superlative, the biggest, the deepest, you know, you know, the brightest, that kind of stuff. To do that in the Hebrew language, you, you doubled the word in order to do that. Um, so, right, bright, bright, deep, deep is how you would say brightest or deepest. 
And it's so rare to see a word tripled because it points to absolute and total perfection. They are praising the absolute mind-boggling and blowing, right? Total wonder and beauty of God's perfection in every way. You know, see, the holiness of God isn't just the perfection of his righteousness. And I know that's kind of how our, we start thinking like that. that. That's not what this is. Because, you see, the holiness of God is the complete perfection of all of his character. It's not just his, righteous, his perfect righteousness. It's his perfect righteousness and his perfect justice and his perfect compassion and his perfect goodness and his perfect trustworthiness and his perfect faithfulness and his perfect grace all coming together. You know, a lot, one preacher uses, a, I think, a great illustration for this when he talks about a prism. You know, I mean, a prism can be used if you have a prism to refract light and break it into its spectral colors. You know, the colors of the rainbow, red, green, yellow, whatever they are. And, um, and, it's, and it's neat and it's even beautiful, right, to see that reflected light, that red, that yellow, that green. But when all that refracted light comes together, that's beauty. And that you get bright, hot, white light. I mean, here, this is penultimate beauty. Overwhelming and astounding glory of who God is in all his character. Listen, do you know what a big, big deal that is? This, this may seem a little abstract for some of you, I, I don't know, but your whole life and my whole life can be described in terms of beauty, I think. Because, you see, we are always chasing beauty. Always in constant pursuit of beauty. And we can't really help it. It's in our DNA as human beings. We have to get it. Instinctively, we know that this is the way to joy. And this is the way to freedom. And this is the way to purpose and meaning in life. To get beauty. So we chase beauty. And what do we chase it in? We chase it in appearance. And we chase it in image. Or we chase that, that beauty in a successful career. We chase that beauty in a deep connection with a spouse. We chase that beauty in a connection with our kids. Or we chase it in pleasure or comfort or power or reputation or financial security and independence. All kinds of things. The pursuit, and do you see how the pursuit of beauty shapes your life? I, I mean, look, we'll sacrifice to get it, the financial security. You know, we'll be intensely driven to get the reputation. We'll be supremely focused to get whatever we have come to call in this life beauty. It's what gives our lives joy and meaning and freedom. And negatively, you know how this works in your life. When you are, when you are denied that thing you think is so beautiful, you have to have. I mean, that's why you get depressed. And are so, so very miserable in this life. And are bitter and angry. And, and you know, we can't help it. We were made and designed for ultimate beauty. But you know this. Especially if you are able to get what you're after. 
the reputation, the power, the financial security. Those things are way too small to ever really ultimately satisfy you. And that's why when we get the thing our hearts are set on, those are usually the most darkest, emptiest days of our lives. Because that's the moment we realize. Even this thing I was chasing can never ultimately satisfy me. Listen, I know all of this might be uncomfortably abstract for you, um, but you've got to hold on to that thought for a moment. And, and right now, I want you to recognize this. You are in pursuit of beauty. I am in pursuit of beauty. But Isaiah got it. I mean, the real thing, the real, ultimate, dazzling, soul-satisfying, glorious beauty, he got it. So wonderful you can't imagine. So amazing that even the angels can't look directly at it. He got it. And so here's the question. Shouldn't that have made Isaiah happy? I mean, he got it. He got the vision of real and ultimate beauty that we're all longing for. But Isaiah wasn't happy because, you see, confronted with real beauty in the light of true perfect holiness, he was exposed, utterly exposed. So here's where we are. Second, what what always happens when a person experiences and meets the real God is that we aren't only confronted with his ultimate beauty and glory, but also with the brokenness, the deep brokenness in our lives. We've gone through three verses so far. We're kind of working our way through. But what what happens when you get to verse four? It says this. And the foundations of the tabernacle shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Earthquake and smoke. Do you know what quaking and smoke represent in the Bible? Think Exodus for a moment. I mean, the people of Israel have just come out of slavery in Egypt and God has led them to this mountain, Mount Sinai, and he has come down on this mountain to meet with his people. And there we are told in Exodus chapter 19 that Mount Sinai was, quote, wrapped with smoke. It says this in Exodus 19 also, the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled. Greatly. So what happened after that? God told Moses, go warn the people not to come anywhere near this mountain. Why? Because in the Bible, smoke and trembling, quaking and and fire, these things represent judgment. I don't want to go too far into it here, but one scholar, Alec Moitier, he writes, holiness endangers the sinner because the holiness of the Lord is not a passive attribute, but an active force embracing all that conforms to it and destroying all that offends. No wonder Isaiah starts calling down curses on himself. I mean, that's what it really means when he says, woe is me. He is saying that he is cursed in the light of this holiness. Ultimate beauty. In front of it, he is cursed. I mean, he is lost. He's devastated. He's ruined. He's a dead man walking is what he's saying. In the light of holiness, he is shocked by his profound brokenness. And in it, he is aware that God's holiness is not passive. It is active and dangerous. 
My first year out of college, I lived in Montgomery, Alabama. And after that year, I moved back to Jackson, Mississippi. And I was broke. <laughs> and uh, I moved back to go to graduate school. And I moved into this tiny little one side of a duplex house in a bad section of town. And uh, it was I hated that house. Uh, I can't even tell you. Um, you know, my car would regularly get broken into. It was just kind of like, eh, don't leave anything valuable in it. Um, you know, bars on the windows and the doors, all that kind of stuff. And a landlord that obviously didn't care about his property. Um, I only lived there three months till I could get out of that place. Um, hated that house. But I would stay out. I would stay out as late as I could in the evenings just to avoid being in that place. That's how much I hated it. And the worst part of it was that it was just infested with cockroaches. This is not a joke. I woke up one night <laughs> because I heard a cockroach walking on the wall beside my bed. That's how big it was. You could have saddled that thing and rode that thing. It was huge. It was so disgusting. I mean, I would stay out late at night to avoid it. And it was just so terrible to have to come in and turn the lights on. Because when you turn the lights on, cockroaches would scurry. And I used to think, I'm just not going to turn on the lights tonight. I just want blissful ignorance. I don't want to see them. Um, in the dark, they were hidden. But when the lights came on, the cockroaches scurried. Here's what happens when you get into the beautiful light of God's character, his holiness. The lights come on and they expose all your cockroaches. They're all in plain sight. They show you that though you long for light, you are not fit for it. And, 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 you know, I know what most of you are thinking, right? You're, you're thinking in the light of God's holiness is when I see all the bad things I shouldn't have done and all the bad things I shouldn't have said or thought. Yes, absolutely. That's true. But there's, there's more to it than that. I mean, why did Isaiah say of all things? I am a man of unclean lips, dwelling in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why, why the lips? You know who Isaiah was, right? He was a prophet. And the translation of that is that he was a preacher. I, I mean, he used his lips to proclaim the word of God. And you say, that's a good thing, right? But all of a sudden, in the light of God's holiness, even the very best service that Isaiah has to offer God, even the most righteous thing he does with his life is all of a sudden seen for what it is because even it is shot through with all kinds of mixed motives and all kind of anger and all kind of pride and all kind of self-centeredness. It's shot through and shown for what it is. All the cockroaches are out on display, even in his righteousness. You see, later on in Isaiah's book here, later on, much later on, several chapters, he picks up this really disturb. I don't know if this is the right word I want to use here, but it's a disturbing metaphor, I guess. Um, and he says, all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags or a polluted garment. And some of you know that the filthy rags or the polluted garment, however it gets translated, that he is referring to a woman's menstrual rags. Disturbing, I guess that's the right word. I, I don't know. But why in the world would he come up with such a metaphor? I think it's because of what happened right here. 
because he had been in the presence of real, ultimate beauty, absolute holiness. And in that light, he came out saying, not just save me from my sin, but save me from my righteousness even. I'm completely helpless. The best I have and the best I am is like filthy rags in the light of this beauty. Okay, finally, let's continue through these verses. There's Isaiah, broken and scared, right? And finally, I want you to see that when Isaiah experiences the real God, he not only finds beauty, you know, he not only is, you know, met with his, and floored by his profound brokenness, but he also finds God's grace and mission. Because then comes verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Let's go, go on to verse 7. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Here's the picture. Now, you've got to give me your best five minutes all morning here because uh, you've got to get the picture and you've got to see all this stuff that we've been talking about come together here. God sends this angel with a burning coal. And you remember, fire and smoke in the Bible represent judgment. But this burning coal is taken from the altar, this place of sacrifice. There is this smoking sacrifice on the altar. And you know what that little word atoned, uh, atoned for at the end of the, the verse means, right? I mean, I guess the most simple way to put it is it means paid for. <laughs> Isaiah, you are right to be afraid in the presence of ultimate beauty, ultimate holiness. But there has been a death in your place. Right? A life was consumed in fiery judgment for you in your place. And because of that, your sins are atoned for. In your account, it's marked paid in full. And God sends this angel to touch Isaiah's lips. Not at the places where Isaiah was probably most evidently aware of his sin. You know, his lust, his deceit, his greed, his whatever rebellion. But he comes with the coal to the place in Isaiah's life where he would have been most proud and most assured of his righteousness. And listen, here's what this means. This means that grace, that salvation, it is always and only a gift. You know, Isaiah, you and me, you are never saved by how moral you are, by how good you are, by how much you get right or by what you have done. The holiness of God forces you to repent, not just for your sins, but also for your righteousness and to cast yourself entirely upon God and his grace. And do you realize Oh my goodness, how free this makes you. I mean, for those of you who are racked with anxiety and just insecurity over your performance in life. This says you can stop. Because grace really is grace. And there is nothing you can do to become worthy of it. And for those of you who are racked with guilt and shame over all kinds of things that you have done, even this past week. This says you can stop. Because grace really is grace. And there is nothing you can do to become unworthy of it. 
you cannot out grace like this. See, with Isaiah's sins atoned for, I hope you realize that this is kind of what God, God is saying to him. He is saying, Isaiah, now you can have it. Right now, you can have ultimate beauty without being destroyed, without being threatened by it. You can have the beauty your heart aches and longs for without fear of judgment because this sacrifice has washed you clean. Now, I I could have done a, a fourth point, but I really wanted to put two things together here because I want you to see how inextricably these things are linked together in the Bible. I really, really want you to see this. God's grace and his mission always come together. I hope you realize this. If you read through your Bible, absolutely no one, absolutely no one ever gets God's grace without also being called into his mission. I mean, Abraham, Moses, David, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Paul, John, they got God's grace and they were called into his mission. Every single time, God's grace received is always accompanied with a call to join God's mission. You know what this passage is saying? It's saying this, God is always ascending God. He's always ascending God. He sends the seraphim to Isaiah to cleanse him. And as soon as Isaiah gets that grace, he turns around and sends Isaiah. He's always sending, right? And verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who, who will go for us? There's only one person there, so I guess Isaiah figured it out. You know, here I am. Send me. But you know, here's the crazy, this crazy thing about this. And I didn't print all of Isaiah chapter 6 for you, for you this morning, but you can read it later. Um, and in the remainder of chapter 6, you read the kind of mission that God is sending Isaiah to. You know what? You know what mission God is sending Isaiah into? He is calling Isaiah to a ministry where no one, no one will ever listen to him. Go speak. No one will ever listen to you. No one is ever going to see. No one is ever going to understand what you say. You go, you will preach over and over and you will never have a single convert. You go out and you will never be a success. I'm sending you into unsuccess in life. That's the mission he sends him into. And Isaiah is jumping at the opportunity. Here I am. Send me. I mean, that's. That's ridiculous. He's all in. I mean, it's crazy. What could possibly account for that? This is my whole point. (laughs) You will never move in this life. You will never change. You'll never be transformed until something outside of you compels you to change. It's, It's true. That initially when Isaiah saw God's holiness... He was all turned in on himself. Navel gazing. Look at me. How terrible I am. Even my righteousness. But when someone outside of him came and cleansed him by grace, he was finally able to stop looking at himself and take pleasure and delight in ultimate beauty without being threatened by it. And with his eye focused outside of himself, captivated and awed by beauty, he has become so... Becomes so secure and so free 
and so full of joy and so free of any kind of self-absorption. He just doesn't care anymore what anyone thinks of him. And he doesn't care whether they will listen or not. And he doesn't care whether or not his life is deemed a success. And listen, and it frees him to go out into God's mission. And listen, because this is how it works every single time in the Bible. That means that's how it can work in your life, too, and in mine. If you experience God, you can find this kind of freedom, this kind of joy. This kind of meaning for your life. The crazy thing happened to Isaiah, right? When he went to the temple, he met the last person he was expecting to meet at the temple. He met God himself. Listen, some of you, you know, you've come in here so often out of habit or because you know it's the thing you should do. Or because you learn or because you, you're challenged or because you, you grow and are encouraged and all kinds of other reasons. And I'm sure they're good. But a lot of times you come in here and you're not expecting to meet the living God. And neither am I. But sometimes he shows up in his glory and in his grace. And whenever he does. He is going to send you out in mission. Thick darkness and trembling at Sinai. Smoke and quaking in Isaiah chapter 6. Always a symbol of judgment. And when Jesus was on the cross, this is a quote from Matthew chapter 27. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. And the earth shook. And the rocks split. Judgment. A sacrifice in your place. He died to atone for your sins and mine. So that you can open your eyes and behold real ultimate beauty. And so that your lives can be given freedom, joy, and meaning. It it, it was probably a silly quote to put on the front of the bulletin. You know, the Lord of the Rings. Um, It's kind of nerdy. But I sure do love that picture. Because it's so thoroughly biblical. Right? As Tolkien says elsewhere... In his book, actually a couple pages after this, the hands of the king are healing hands. And how he comes and he touches the lifeless, cold body of Eowyn. And he says, awake, Eowyn. Right? Awake, Eowyn, lady of Rowan. Awake, the shadow is gone. And all darkness is washed clean. Friends, All darkness is washed clean because all your darkness and all my darkness fell on Jesus. And it's by his wounded hands that we are made clean. True ultimate beauty is when all the spectral colors come together. And I'm telling you, this is beauty. That at the cross, right, holiness and grace came together and shook hands. That righteousness and mercy met. Justice and love met and kissed. Have you seen that beauty? Can you see that beauty? If you do, then you will know that you cannot stay the same. You have an untouchable freedom, joy, and meaning in this life because of Jesus. The shadow is gone and all the darkness has been washed clean. 
telling you this is too good of news. It's too beautiful to keep to yourself. Jesus is calling you into his mission. Are you scared? Are you nervous? Are you worried what others think? Are you, are, are you afraid of failure? Then fall beneath the one who was crucified for you. And let beauty chase away all your fears. Let's pray. Merciful Father, we were made for beauty. We long for it. The, the evidence of that is written all over our lives. We're in constant pursuit of it. Father, would you please take us before the cross? You would show us that a sacrifice has been made to atone for all our sins, that judgment fell on Jesus so that we might go free so that we might have joy, that we might have meaning in this life. Father, help us to see that place. Gross and hard, full of pain. As the most beautiful place. The place where righteousness and grace met. Where justice and love met. Father, Awaken our hearts, we pray, with this good news. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.